trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Welcome back to Access to Excellence, and we're thrilled to be joined today by Professor Shabita Satyapal and third-year PhD student Ryan Feifel from the Mason Department of Physics and Astronomy within the College of Science. They are part of a team that recently drew both national and international attention following a paper they published that identified three gigantic black holes about to collide in a rarely seen merger of galaxies. Their study, which was published in the Astrophysics Journal, not only located the rarely seen phenomena, but identified new ways to look for them in the future. The work has been featured everywhere, it seems, including on CNN and the New York Times, among other places. Pretty heady stuff, Shabita. Has even begun to sink in yet? Well, no, not quite. <laughs> it's actually a pretty amazing discovery. Even one supermassive black hole is, is amazing enough, but having three coming together in three massive galaxies that are possibly on their way to colliding was a pretty amazing discovery for astronomers. And if you think about it, uh, they're possibly 200 million to 2 trillion galaxies in the universe. And this is the only triple supermassive black hole feeding system that has been robustly confirmed at these separations so far. So it's a pretty rare and amazing thing. So we're, we're thrilled that, that it was discovered. Now, I know this has been a complete team effort for you guys. What's led up to the recent discovery and who are some of the other people on your team? Besides Ryan. Uh, yeah, so uh, Ryan here, this uh, amazing graduate student who I was fortunate enough to join my group right exactly at the time where we got these observations. And we have an, an amazing team of people that come from all over the world, essentially, from Chile, from Canada. We have collaborators in the University of Florida and two main collaborators in Arizona, the Large Binocular Telescope and UC Riverside. And at Mason itself, we have other amazing grad students. There's another third-year graduate student, Jenna Kahn, who also contributed to this work and uh, has done some amazing work like Ryan. And we also have Mario Gliozzi, who's a professor here and a longtime collaborator. And it's really been amazing how the team came together. And I think it's a demonstration of how science works. Collaboration is crucial. And here we made use of three major observatories, two of them in space and one on on the ground and expertise all across the nation to make this happen in a, in a really short period of time after Ryan's discovery of these three amazing x-ray sources that led to the investigation. You and I had talked a little bit, Shavita, about how far away these black holes are and I guess it'll be a couple million years before they actually collide. So why is this significant now? For people who don't have like a astrophysics background like myself, why should this grab our attention now? Okay, so basically, just to put things in perspective, we really didn't even know that there were such a thing as supermassive black holes until really only a few decades ago, really in large part the last two decades where we realized that these things even exist. And their masses can be tremendous. Uh, they can get as massive as 70 billion times the mass of the sun. And they're being found at very high redshift, which means very far away from us, which means very early in the history of the universe. And so somehow these things got to such monstrous size, and we really don't know how. And that's been one of the biggest questions. And we think that one of the main ways that they get so large is by galaxies colliding. And galaxies collide 
actually quite frequently. In fact, the Milky Way and galaxies like the Milky Way, we think, have bumped into other galaxies or collided with other galaxies at least three times in cosmic history. And so we think that during that process, that's when the supermassive black holes or the black hole at the center actually does the most growing. Now, one of the problems is that when you have two galaxies colliding, then their black holes slowly start sinking towards the center of of the, of the two galaxies as predicted by simulations. But then right when they get just within a few light years of each other, they stall. And a third black hole, actually, if it's in the vicinity of these two orbiting black holes or binary black holes can actually produce the kick necessary to actually make the two black holes collide. And if that happens, that's a colossal gravitational event. And just to put things in perspective, many people know that gravitational waves were detected for the first time in September of 2015, which was a monumental discovery. They were predicted by Einstein and then finally observed uh, just a few years ago. And those black holes were just a few few tens times the the mass of the sun, the the merging black holes that gave rise to those gravitational waves. And just to give you a sense for how colossal an event that was, the black holes gave rise to gravitational waves that contained as much energy as 50 times all of the stars in the entire observable universe. And when supermassive black holes collide, like the ones that Ryan found in this galaxy, that will give rise to tremendous amounts of energy a million times more than the gravitational events that we've already detected. So these are tremendous events. And if these triple supermassive black holes end up being more common than we thought, then these are going to be the sources for these tremendous gravitational events that will be detected by future gravitational wave experiments. So there's yeah. nothing I need to worry about? I don't need to go home and like you know say my last prayers and make my last one testament or anything today? <laughs> well, we, we should emphasize that this particular <laughs> system, it's, it's not going to collide anytime soon. And the other thing is, as, as you mentioned, this, this particular system is one billion light years away. That means the photons that we detected were emitted one billion years ago. Wow. And the merger itself, if it happens, takes about a billion years. And this is really far away. So even if they collide and it would be this massive gravitational event, think about it as like uh, you know a colossal explosion that's happening in the middle of the ocean. And you're really far away. Like let's say it's happening in the middle of the Pacific, you'll get these ripples in the ocean, and we'll be able to detect them, but they don't necessarily affect us, uh, right? Because we're like not sitting analogy. right right in the middle of the triple supermassive black hole system. So let me ask you again, then. If this is all what you say, it's this far away, it's a million years from happening, why is this a significant finding now? I think... It's really important to know the frequency of these kinds of gravitational events. It's really important to know how these black holes get to such supermassive sizes. These are tremendous black holes. They, they can be, as I said, up to 70 billion times the mass of the sun, and that's one of the biggest mysteries. How does that happen? And these mergers are critical to build the black holes to these levels, but we've barely found evidence for that, and that's some of the work that our team has been doing over a number of years is trying to find 
find them. I don't know if you realize this, but probably not. A lot of people <laughs> have been searching for these systems for decades. They've done pioneering work, and what they've been doing is they've been looking for these things using optical light. So that's what our eyes are sensitive to. Now, the thing that our group realized is that when the black holes are coming together in these galaxy collisions and the matter is falling on the black hole, that's precisely when the black holes are going to be seen because when black holes are feeding, that's when they light up. They emit lots and lots of light and that's when we can detect them. Now, this very material that's going onto the black hole that's being fed is also blocking it. It's kind of like having a blanket over the this really luminous thing, but you can't see it because of the blanket. So all of these optical observations actually were not really looking with the right set of eyes because you can't see through this blanket. So what we realized is that, wait a minute, we're not looking for these things th the right way. We need to use different telescopes. We need to look with eyes that can see through this blanket that's covering the the feeding black holes. And so that's when we turned our attention to infrared observations. And uh, and it was a pretty stressful time because we were trying to convince the scientific community that, look, you're looking the wrong way. And we need to look and select these galaxies with the infrared because that's actually glows with the heat emitted from the black hole and allows you to see these feeding monsters at the centers of the galaxies. And basically, our team started in 2012 writing furiously these proposals to try to find these supermassive black holes using infrared selection. And I remember you know, a team of students that I had then and collaborators, we were working really hard. We had many sleepless nights writing <laughs> proposals, which is, as Ryan knows, what we do. <laughs> in fact, we've written 23 proposals this year. So we wrote these proposals. Proposals, and I remember just, I think we had three nights of no sleep and lots oh. of coffee. And in 2012, we said, look, guys, we need to be looking with infrared-selected galaxies. And in our field, you have to write proposals justifying observing time. And it's highly competitive, and it's peer-reviewed. And I remember that we worked so hard, and in 2012, we got a rejection. And they said, now, you know what? These are so rare. People have been looking for so long. In fact, they've used optical observations and searched through one million galaxies that have been looked at with something called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And so far, only a few tens of these feeding double supermassive black holes have been found. So we're not going to give you precious telescope time to look at six targets, which is what we proposed. We picked our six best targets. And the panel said, no, we're not going to give you time to look at these six galaxies go home. And so it got rejected. And then we tried again in 2013 and it got accepted. And I remember that first time where we were finally looking at the data where the Chandra Space Observatory, which is this 40 foot ton telescope, the largest telescope launched by the space shuttle. It's one third the way to the moon, finally pointed at these six galaxies that we selected. Oh, wow, and awesome. looked at them. And lo and behold, every single one of them had evidence of this monstrous feeding black hole that we were able to see simply because we looked through the obscuring blanket, as I mentioned, using infrared selection and x-ray detection. Every single one of them found a black hole accreting at this monstrous rate, and and four of them had two black holes. And so that, that was a tremendous discovery. And then 
after that, we got three more cycles of observing time with three major space observatories. And that's when I was lucky enough to have Ryan walk into the group. And we got many more observations. And we 15, at which time he then discovered more of these dual black holes. And then he found the triple AGN, which is... So you guys just stumbled upon that. Let me ask you yeah. real quick. Let me stop you real quick. Let's assume that some of our readers don't have the quite the, the physics background you guys have or, or not in any danger of being hired by NASA like myself. So, you know, I've heard terms like massive black, supermassive black holes, black holes, feeding. What exactly does that mean? What are black holes? What do they do exactly? And why are they so important in the galactic scheme of things? Yeah, so people have a lot of misconceptions about black holes. Basically, anything can be a black hole. Like, <laughs> you, you and I can be black holes. Is that a scientific definition? <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it's just an object where even light can escape. So it's, it's, it's a massive object where nothing can escape but even light. And as you know, light has a finite speed. It's 180,000 miles per second. And even light can escape a black hole. And it's sort of been this subject of science fiction novels, but anything, like even even you and I can become black holes if you squish us down to the size of a, of a quark, which is the building box of matter. Now, these black holes that we're looking at are supermassive. So as I said, like a billion solar masses, and they're not as small as a quark. They're actually quite big. They're bigger than the solar system. So there's these monstrous things. And essentially, they're just extreme gravitational, or you could call it like singularities, where you can't see through because light can't even ex- escape the extreme gravity of these events. I think I read somewhere that one of the black holes is 460 million to 2.9 billion times more massive than the sun. Is that correct? How do you, yeah. even, how do you even grasp that? I mean, that is beyond the pale for me. Yeah, Ryan maybe can answer Ryan that because he, he knows all the numbers. Of- yeah, so one of them we did, uh, based on our, our radio observations, we were able to determine that this, this mass range, it's somewhere between these few hundred million to a few uh, billion times and that is the mass of the sun. And that's, I mean, it, in studying these things, it's still mind-boggling how gigantic these objects really can get. Because really, if you dropped one at the center of the solar system, it really would go out to like the orbit of Pluto. It would be the size of the solar system. And these are huge objects, incredibly massive. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I never quite get over that fact <laughs> of, of how big these things are. And it's likely that all three of them in the system are probably about that size. We just didn't have enough data for the other two to determine their masses. Ryan, it must have been insane for you watching your work, you and Shabita's work getting crazy attention from all of the world from and hearing your names spoken with it. What was life like for you in those immediate days and weeks after the story first went viral? Pretty sure you probably heard from a lot of people you hadn't heard from in a while. <laughs> yeah, so immediately after, I remember I was waiting all day because we knew the press release was going to drop because we'd been we'd been writing back and forth and editing the press release with the with the press office at NASA. And so I was waiting all day that Wednesday, and it dropped. Uh, I actually had I'd walked down the hallway to the uh, Astro Coffee session. I was hanging out with people, and it dropped in the middle of that session. So I get back to my desk, and I suddenly had two to three emails from reporters that I, I didn't even realize <laughs> that the press release had gone out. And so. So for the next two days, I, uh, next three days, I spent literally just trying to figure out how to respond to reporters by email because I find it much more difficult to uh, explain things by email than uh, than just talking to them. It's, it takes so much longer. So I, I spent so much time writing emails and then uh, Shabita and I sat down for two or three interviews the next day. And so we were in interviews for like two or three hours the next day. And uh, 
And then it was just, I was trying to get things out on social media and share things on Twitter and Facebook. And it really was just a whirlwind. It was probably about, it was probably a week or two weeks before things actually started to calm down. But yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. It was very exciting. Does it still seem pretty surreal that a grad student here at George Mason University could be part of a team that was the talk of the entire scientific world? Yes. <laughs> In short, yes. Yeah, that was, that was pretty crazy. And I, I, have to, I have to admit, I was very, very fortunate and very lucky to walk in and join this group at the right time. Because if there had been any other student doing this work, they, I, I have no doubt they would have found the three extra resources that I found. So I was very lucky to be the one to find that. Because really the big chunk of work that was done to select these targets and select this particular triple merger was done before I even joined the group. So I really was the one that they just handed the data to and, and was lucky enough to be the one to, to look at the data for the first time. Now, I understand that you guys were turned down at your first attempt at getting the paper published. I guess you had the last laugh, but how disappointed were you originally? And was there any doubt that you keep pressing ahead and get your work out for the world to see? Yeah, so the first time that we s- submitted our manuscript, we sent, we sent it off to, to Nature, um, which is very competitive. We thought we had a, a reasonable shot, to, but it was a long shot at even still. So it was disappointing to, to get the rejection letter. It was more, I think it was more disappointing the reviews that we received because there, there was a lot of skepticism and, and uh, it was it was difficult to read those reports. But we knew we were going to keep pushing forward. So uh, immediately we said well, we're going to rewrite this for uh, the Astrophysical Journal Letters, which is the shorter version of the journal that we ended up being published in. We had some trouble there with the review process again, but we eventually, we persevered. We ended up getting uh, accepted in the Astrophysical Journal. So it's very exciting, but it, the whole process, I guess we were actually lucky. Usually the publication process can last quite a long time. I think start to finish for us. We started writing the paper in February of this year um, and we published it. Uh, it was formally published in the, I think the 1st of October, but it was accepted back back at the beginning of August. So it was uh, at least for having to, you know, submit the paper, then bring it back, rewrite it, submit it, rewrite, bring, you know, it was, that that was a bit gruesome uh, in, in such a short amount of time. But in the end, yeah, we, we did we did end up having the last laugh. <laughs> How much satisfaction does that give you? Uh, uh, quite, quite a bit. <laughs> Probably too much, actually. <laughs> well, what, what's next for you? I mean, where does this uh, project do for you? What do you see yourself doing next? So I have a few projects on on the on back order that I'm working on. I have one that I'm working on right now with uh, one of our collaborators who, who worked with us on this previous paper. So we're working on that paper. But there's a few more projects uh, dealing with um, not only this dual merger sample. So we have new uh, higher energy X-ray observations that that uh, we'll be working on to, to get published soon. We have a project looking at how heavily obs- obscured and, and um, how much gas and dust is sitting between us in um, galaxy mergers and post-mergers. So galaxies that have already collided and smashed together and have become sort of one system. And then we're hoping to to extend our study of, of triple mergers. Uh, we recently put together a sample of triple mergers or, or even higher order. There's one system that has five galaxies in it. So we're hoping to get some follow-up observations from the ground and hopefully from uh, with Chandra to try to see if we can find more of these triple black hole systems using the same techniques that we used in the previous system. What advice would you give future grad students looking to follow you into this field? Uh, sleep. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, sleep. But this is always a difficult question, I have to admit, because I, because like I said, I was very fortunate to walk into the right team at the right time. But what I definitely can say is always, whenever something looks odd, which in, in my case, the system looked rather odd when I first started looking at it, bring it up with your advisor and bring it up with your uh, co-advisors and co-authors, and then continue to press that issue if you think that there's something there. Because I wasn't quite sure something was there. We, we looked at it, and we were like, we're not really sure. I 
guess we need more data. And so I spent uh, two years begging for more data <laughs> and bothering, bothering my group uh, so that we get more near-infrared data and more optical data. So, so that that's definitely one thing is is, is push your right. If you have the idea or if you have some some inclination that something is there, push push for that. Well, I've heard you and Shabita both reiterate the lack of sleep being a, a key thing here. Why is that so important for you? I mean, what happens that kept you up all night? So, Shabita and I are both workaholics, so that's uh, that's uh, that's a bit of our personal problem. But uh, <laughs> but it, but it seems to be a, a consistent thing in, in in grad school, especially. Is I have a lot of colleagues that stay up half the night working. I do it frequently enough, but it's good to stop and put your work on hold and get a good night's sleep because then you can start refreshed. Even though you you know I've I've been in those situations where I'm in, I'm entrenched in my work. I want to get the answer. I, I'm I'm working up until four in the morning to get the answer. But there's a lot of times where I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I had just put my books down and closed my laptop and just gone to sleep because I would have woken up feeling a lot better about my about my work the next day. And, and it helps with productivity too, to, to, to step away from the work. Because sometimes you get to a point where you're, just, you're beating yourself against a wall and you need to just take a break to be able to see the, the right path forward. Hang on a second, John. I, I have to say something because I'm, I've been quietly laughing here as Ryan talks about oh, please, sleep. Please, please, please. <laughs> <laughs> because it's really funny because I get emails from him at four in the morning Two in the morning, <laughs> six in the morning, in fact, um, all day to, long. To read them, of course. <laughs> yeah, I know. And what's funny is that I'm the one telling him he needs to sleep, and I send him periodically articles on research they've done on what happens to the brain with lack of sleep. And he and I are exchanging emails in the middle of the night. So I find it particularly amusing that what that was his, his tip. Feather, so I right? guess he's finally listened to me because Ryan has shown a tremendous amount of determination and work and carrying this project through. I mean, he's worked countless hours. He's gone all over the world to Chile twice. He's been in France. I sent him somewhere earlier this week. So he's gone everywhere presenting this work and working really hard and, and not sleeping. So I just, sorry, I had to I had to say something about that just because it was funny. <laughs> so Ryan, so if you're traveling all over the place, you're obviously uh, kept busy doing a lot of things and presenting all over the world. How's that affected you and how's that helped you grow as both a person and as a, an academic? I think one of the biggest things that I take away from the conferences, because I, I should be to mention, I, I, I went down to uh, Chile twice, one, one uh, twice for a conference, and then I've gone previ- earlier this year. I was in um, Greece and in France for conferences, and so being able to go to these conferences and present this work, you know, for the first time, you know, really we didn't, I didn't discuss this this triple black hole system for the uh, until June uh, when I was in Greece, and to see, I guess this is. Personally, I, I feel good um, to, to see my my fellow researchers asking questions after I finish the talk and seeing them nod their heads as I as I go through these different diagnostics and see their their approval and then to have them talk to you afterward and say, "Hey, that's a really awesome discovery. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that?" Particularly when I was in France, I had a, a few colleagues that are at uh, the University of Southampton that uh, that work on on radio observations, and so one one walked up and said, "Hey, for your dual program." Have you, have you gotten ALMA data? Have you gotten other radio observations? You know, you, we see these certain features. It would be really great to collaborate. And then another another colleague said, "Oh, for your triples, have you have you have you considered looking at radio observations?" And so these are, these are sort of fantastic opportunities to not only disseminate your work, but to build new collaborations with people all over the world with a whole host of of skill sets, some of which we don't have in our group right now. So professionally, it's great because I can I can sort of start to build my professional network. And 
And of course, it's great PR for the university. Um, George Mason is not well known in the astrophysics community. On several occasions, people have said, oh, I didn't know ast- uh, George Mason has an astrophysics program. And I was like, yeah, I, I, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's really nice to show that aspect of the university and to try to attract more students to the school. So definitely these conferences are great for this professional growth and for, and for the personal growth because it, it allows me to get out. There. I've uh, For a large part of my life, I've, I've been more introverted um, and conferences make me go out and talk to people um, and make me uh, go out and, and, and network, which is a little bit difficult. And it's difficult for a lot of scientists to, to learn to network. So it's really a good opportunity to get out there, meet people that are, have similar interests in as far as research goes, and, and to be a little more, more outgoing and to learn to be a better public speaker as well. Mr. Vita, you've had a distinguished career as well, done a lot of things, worked for NASA. You obviously have a deep love for the uh, stars and for research. Has it always been the case, and have you always wanted to be an astrophysicist? Actually, ever since I can remember, I've wanted to study physics or astrophysics. I've always been attracted to asking the deeper questions about the universe, trying to understand the origins and where we came from and and the meaning of existence. I thought you guys so. discovered that. I thought there was a media report saying you guys discovered the origins of life. Yeah, no? I, was, I was thinking Ryan could report on that. <laughs> Interesting. On that <laughs> now, I've always been fascinated, and I, I should say that my mom is a theoretical particle physicist, and, and my dad was worked for the United Nations, and I, I always felt that science sort of unifies everyone in the world. It's the same moon that we look up at, the same stars, and when you're worried about all the drama of your existence, all you have to do is look up at the sky and realize that a lot of it is insignificant. So I think that's one of the fortunate things about being in our field is that we really can put life in perspective and and just uh, you know think more deeply about the universe. What are your future plans, and could they involve the James Webb Space Telescope? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Ryan knows how excited I am about the James Webb Space Telescope. So this was a telescope that was being conceived when I was in graduate school, and so it was a very exciting mission. And I was fortunate enough to work on that mission concept, actually, before anything was ever built. Um, and I was an instrument scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, working on the formulation of the mission and the development of some of the technology. So I'm really excited, and our group is really excited of extending these studies with the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be launched in 2021. And it's anticipated that the James Webb Space Telescope will allow us to look at galaxies that are even farther away. And we think that the majority of black hole growth happens earlier in the universe, when the universe was, say, like 3 billion years old. And mergers are more common because the universe was smaller, as you know, the universe is expanding. And so we are expecting more of these double and triple systems that we want to look at with the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, thank you so much. And that will wrap things up today here at Access to Excellence. We want to thank Shabita and Ryan for their time. We want to wish them both a very hearty congratulations for their success. Until next time. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.